Welcome to the Effective Marketing for Entrepreneurs podcast brought to you by Bull Media, a show where we interview thriving entrepreneurs and talk to them about the role that marketing has played in helping them grow their business. So um, I guess really for this, I mean, I really want to keep it just, you know, kind of conversational and just kind of have you, uh, you know, ask you a couple of questions and learn from your journey. Because I mean, what you've been uh, having running your own two businesses for what, about eight years now? Looks like from LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, just about. I mean, I went out on my own in 2013. Um, okay. That was when Business Casual launched. And then Case Study Buddy came a few years after that. So they didn't spin off at the same time. But yeah, been out on my own since July 1st, 2013. So it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> so with the uh, business casual copywriting, so can you kind of like, so how'd that all start? Cause I, you know, understand that you what, worked in SEO for a couple years at an agency. So like, what, what was that story? Yeah. I mean, every job I've ever had um, with few exceptions has been something I didn't know existed until it, until it was my job. So okay. um, I, I had come out of I'll, the shorter version is I, I had fallen basically asked backwards into doing SEO at a digital marketing agency. Um, prior to that, you know, my first like real job, I was an accounting gopher at like an oil and a junior oil and gas firm. And then okay. went out to uh, graduated university, went out to Toronto, supposed to be there all summer long doing uh, B2B, what I thought was like B2B marketing. So I thought I'd be doing like you know, writing ad campaigns and like stuff like that. And it turned out to just be a whole lot of B2B cold calling. Um, oh boy. which turns out is not a great fit for my personality. I, <laughs> um, so came home kind of tail between my legs and got an opportunity to go into this agency where someone I was friends with in, in university, uh, said, Hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working for this, this kind of startup agency. There's only, I think I was number four. There's like only a small group. And he said, okay. uh, you know, do you want to do SEO? And I'm like, what's SEO? And he's like, well, it's, <laughs> it's working on, you know, search engine results. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Do I have to cold call? Nope. So I'm like, all right, I'll apply. Great. So applied, got in there. And from there, as the company grew, so did my opportunities. So I started to work initially on kind of mom and pop businesses and smaller companies, which, you know, you get a, a feel for budget constraints and mm-hmm. kind of learn the ropes. And then over time, eventually was doing kind of national, you know, campaigns and, and learning the ins and outs of things like analytics and whatnot, but always loved to write, just never saw like a full blown business opportunity in it full time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of, even, even though it was what I love to do it was kind of my blind spot. So um, when, when kind of the SEO landscape was shifting, that's when it became really apparent that there was a huge need for strong writing. I mean, the Panda update back then kind of rolled through and obliterated a whole bunch of sites with really thin or bad or spun content. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. content was on everyone's mind and suddenly worth paying for. Um, and I had done little projects at the agency. I was contributing to our, you know, writing for our blog and I was, you know, the odd project writing copy for people's sites. And so over time kind of said, okay, there's this huge field of like writing for the web and writing content that, that I can step into. And kind of the, the thing that pulled the pin from the grenade and made my time at the agency limited is we hired this freelancer. Um, okay. And we were paying her 40 bucks an hour, which to me at the time was like, having been in that accounting go for a job, I'm like, 
that's like engineer money. That's, you know, like, that's like junior engineer <laughs> that's the upgrade money. right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, like at the time, 40 bucks an hour seemed like this impossibly high sum of money. So I'm like, okay. But the, the, the catch was like her, her work was just bad. Okay. Um, objectively bad, like cut corners and not written that well and not really sticking to the brief. And I thought, wow, if someone with this level of work can build this amount of money, like what, what would I be worth out there? So I went out on my own kind of on the side initially, I started okay. kind of picking up these side gigs. So, um, you know, I, I asked my boss, I says, is it okay if I pick up some writing projects while I'm still at the agency? So yeah, as long as it doesn't conflict with, you know, your, your work here and it's, you're not competing with us, that's fine. Oh, that's uh, cool. So I started, uh, right. yeah, my, my first like real job, um, I, I was connected to this consultant in the city and every year he put together this RV magazine okay. um, for, for a company called Booker's RV. Uh, and so he asked if I, if I would contribute some pieces to that, do some research, contribute pieces to that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, this seems like a cool opportunity. And then he asked a question I wasn't really ready for, which was, what are your rates? I'm like, hmm. <laughs> so I hadn't thought this far ahead. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, the, the person who wasn't great was 40 an hour. Um, and so on the spot, as I'm sitting across from him, I'm just like, I have to say something. So I'm like 80, 80 an hour. He's like, all right. It's a little steep, but it's fair. And I'm like, what just he happened? He just said yes like, right there? Yeah. That's when oh my, my, my mind was just blown. I'm like, okay, there's, there's something to this. So that, you know, I, I picked up more stuff on the side and in 2013, I finally, uh, went out on my own and, and originally business casual was kind of more on the content side, eBooks mm -hmm. and blog posts and that sort of thing. Um, and then in short order, I came across the work of Joanna Weeb. And really that was my first exposure to the positive side of um, conversion copywriting and direct response and thought, okay, here's this space where I can marry all the analytics and digital stuff I've been learning with uh, all of the writing that I already love to do. So just didn't look back at, at that point, kind of went all in on the conversion copy front and to this day, that's still, obviously, I hope I've gotten better at it since then. Um, but that's, that's where all my consulting and, and copywriting work personally is. And then some, some years later, I spun off case study buddy. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, and it's really interesting what you said about like the cold calling piece of it, right? Because like, I feel like that's where I feel like marketing becomes like an afterthought for a lot of people when they're starting out the new business and they feel like they have to be sales led, but obviously with your experience, you were like, that's, you knew that wasn't the way you wanted to go. So is that how the initial, you know, build started with, uh, you know, with uh, business casual copywriting was just, you know, network and then word of mouth based off of that? Or was there anything more you were doing as you started to gain new clients? Yeah. I, I mean, it was a combination of things. Like I had the great fortune of foresight, right? So mm -hmm. while I was freelancing on the side with the agency, the cogs were kind of turning in my head and I was realizing, okay, this is ultimately, I think, where I want to end up. I mean, there, there was yeah. always the question of like, would I just go to a, a different agency? Like, and, and I'm still on great terms with um, my boss. Like he, he gave me a, a shot there. And um, so it had nothing to do with, with anything being necessarily wrong there. Mm -hmm. I just knew that that my, my direction wasn't, wasn't going to be there. And so I was really lucky in a lot of ways like I got to network while I was agency side. So I would go to conferences and I was meeting people. I was meeting them as an SEO, but as I started to publish more, they started to get to see me more. 
mm-hmm. as a writer. And so I was building this network, you know, on Twitter. There's a really tight knit community there in person, shaking hands and learning names and hanging out locally, you know, going to friends who either already were freelancing or already were, you know, running agencies or development shops and whatever. And, and I had the foresight to kind of go, okay, I should probably, you know, do some projects, see if I even want to do this and have right. some examples that when I go out on my own, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a good place. My first like consistent contract. So, I mean, the stuff I did with, with the magazine, like that was my first project, but it was once a year. You can't right. live that. Uh, my first consistent project came to me from a guy named Mike, Mike King. Um, I pull rank. And so he was working agency side at uh, I acquire at the time. And he got me a steady blogging gig there. Okay. And I had a byline and, you know, and I was getting a good rate and that increased my visibility as well. So now I had some consistent money coming in, but I knew from the beginning, like I didn't want a cold call. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time I thought, you know, and this is how your mentality of yourself shifts with time, but I'm like, I'm not good at sales. Like, <laughs> I'm not good at sales. Now, like I help people sell things all day and night. And right. Like, yeah. But at the time I was like, no, I'm not good at sales. I'm not good at cold calling. I never want to have to do that again. I'm going to try to do this a different way. So I just started, you know, by building a portfolio work, making connections, getting testimonials and referrals from that. And Thankfully that, you know, since then, like that's just perpetuated one project led to another project led to another opportunity. It led to speaking gigs, led to bigger projects and and so on and so forth. So you got to start where you're at and kind of roll the snowball. But, you know, now my snowball has a lot of momentum where I'm in the very fortunate position to be able to kind of pick and choose what I take on. Interesting. Yeah. And I I love what you said about there about momentum, because I feel like that's a a thing that a lot of just, you know, either large marketing teams, small business owners, every, everybody, everybody alike, like, I feel like discounts the value of momentum, because like, how would you say or characterize the difference in like how you approach marketing your business now than you did in those early days? Because like you said, you know, you have a lot more experience, you have that momentum, you can pick and choose what you want. So like, how is that shift? How would you kind of characterize that shift from when you started to now for at least for business casual copywriting? Yeah. I mean, in the early days I was publishing all the time. Like Mm -hmm. I was blogging all the time. I was writing client work all the time. I think, you know, like if we're going to cite like Atomic Habits, for example, is a book everyone like recommends and it, it is a great book, but like I was unknowingly like forced into a system where I was publishing almost every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're prolific and you're putting out that much work, you're making a whole lot of noise, a whole lot of waves, hopefully more than just noise, meaningful noise. But uh, I mean, I was publishing all the time. And then as I got busier and busier, the strength of my reputation really started to be the wind in the sails. I mean, one of the things that I was fortunate to do from the beginning is I've always kind of, even if it wasn't in format, mm-hmm. I've always a niche. So in the early days, I was doing a ton of work for agencies themselves because that was where all my, so I kind of became this specialized writer for, you know, digital marketing content and for agencies themselves. And then as I transitioned into conversion copywriting, um, you know, software became, you know, B2B and it's software. And I still do a ton of work for agencies. Like the two most recent projects I'm working on right now are an SEO, you know, basically a white label SEO service. And now I'm working on this SEO agency. So I still, a ton of my work still comes from there. Hmm. Um, but you know, in the early days, it was about being prolific. It was about publishing as much, uh, you know, good work as possible, making sure I was really carefully trying to get 
public facing testimonials and those principles still hold true. I still publish now, but in a different way. So I have my own newsletter now. I'm not as reliant on like having someone else's platform to bolster my own. I've, I've got okay. my own. And, and now that, that I would say is one of the things that it's a necessary transition is you can leech off of other people's authority in the early days, right? And you, and you mm-hmm. should, right? If, if someone else has a platform and you have an opportunity to step on the box for a bit, like, yeah, take it. Get on there, right? Yeah. Box, right? It's not you stop collaborating with people, but like, I need my newsletter or I need my own reputation to sustain me. I can't always be one to one to one. And that's the other thing I always hated about cold calling or cold pitching is it happens in secret. Like, mm-hmm. no one but the person you pitch ever sees that where I'd much rather like my mentality has always been to solve problems in public. So find a niche, understand their pains, solve those pains in public over and over and over again. And that's how you get known for being the go-to guy or gal for, you know, this type of company who needs this type of solution. It's that consistency in solving those problems in public because people really hire you, not just for what you do, but how you think. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a, and that, that's a, that's a, that's a good insight there. And that's, and that's another thing, you know, if we're talking about momentum and things that um, I don't want to say, you know, people undervalue this because I think people recognize the value of niching down. But so when you uh, started out, it sounded like, you know, you didn't know that one day, you know, you're going to be a conversion copywriter for B2B SaaS and agencies, right? I mean, you knew obviously working agencies, but like, um, obviously you work with a lot of B2B SaaS companies. So what is your experience with, you know, niching down for the content, the copy that you create? Like, can you kind of talk me through that? Cause I think you have probably a lot of valuable insights there. Yeah. I mean, in the early days you're learning, you know, you're, you're learning what you're good at. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like if we compare it to an athlete, like let's say, you know, okay, I, I want to, I want to play a sport, but I don't know what I'm good at. So you Mm -hmm. should try hockey and you should try track and field and you should try baseball and you should try curling and you should try, you know, chess and you should try like esports and like until you've exposed yourself to an opportunity, you can't really know whether or not it's a fit. So in the early days, I said yes to a lot of stuff because it's Mm -hmm. like that's how I would sort out what I was good at, what I even liked. So I wrote video scripts and I wrote ebooks and I wrote you know, um, ad campaigns and I wrote email series. And, and so I, I wrote all this different stuff, you know, case studies, the case study buddy came out of me saying yes to one project going, holy crap, there's an opportunity here and spinning up a whole business. So in the early goings on, you say yes to a lot. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing. You don't have to know necessarily right away, have this clear crystallized vision of like who you're going to be when you grow up. I think that's such a misnomer and like it didn't all happen at like I didn't spontaneously like you say like B2B SaaS conversion copy here I go I said right. yes to a lot and then and then whittled down I think the value of niching though once you've found a groove mm-hmm. you don't want to remain open to new opportunities but the value of niching is that you start to build up processes specialized to that niche so for example like it's really hard to be both like a champion weightlifter and you know, a hockey, I'm going to use hockey because I'm Canadian, but like a hockey (laughs) forward, like if you've got all this muscle on you, you're not suited for something, some things and not others, the way you work out and train should be totally different. Um, And similarly, like now that I've niched down, I have a step-by-step process. I go through every time for 
the research and analysis phase. I have a step-by-step -step process I go through when I'm writing a landing page. I don't have to constantly be building new systems for new products. I don't have to think, here's how I do an ebook and now, okay, here's how I do an ad campaign. I can do all those things. I'll still, you know, bring in, you know, if I'm doing a landing page, I'll bring in the processes I've built for ads. Right. But when you get in a groove and when you niche down, like when I'm looking for reviews to analyze for a customer, I know G2 Captera, you know, like I know the sites to go to. I know the right. process to filter through. And even for your own sales process, right? Like I know what a VP in a SaaS business needs to hear from me to say yes. I don't know what, let's say, a yoga instructor necessarily what's gonna hit home with them right like mm -hmm. maybe that's an, a bad example but like i know how to sell into this market now so i can do it over and over and over again i don't have to be omnipresent i don't have to like be in groups for yoga leaders and try to live with another foot in this SaaS world like mm -hmm. i can go i know where my audience is prioritize my time so over time, like you start broad, but the, the narrower kind of you get, I think the fear is that it's going to get boring or repetitive. And so people are like, no, I got to, I got to do everything. I'll get bored doing that. But you get so much more efficient. And I still have the novelty because even though, yeah, the space that I operate in agencies, software companies, and kind of B2B at large, even though there is a lot of uniformity there, the problems I get to solve are, are different and unique. They're complex. Yeah it's still creative problem solving. You have to, you know, no, I'm not, I don't have the novelty of like, I wrote a video script on Monday and on Friday I wrote a landing page, but mm. I'm solving different and interesting problems every time. So you don't lose that aspect of, you know, of, of things being different and interesting when you narrow down. And yeah. And I think that's a great insight. And I wanted to ask you about case study, buddy. And I know we're talking about marketing, but I think you touched on something that I think will like resonate and help a lot of people. Cause what you mentioned there with like your processes for each of your, um, you know, different steps of the process of working with you. Um, I, I think that's interesting. I think that's helpful. Cause I think people, you know, don't see that side of things because if you're going to take on, you know, clients, uh, you know, large volume of clients, if you're going to, you know, take them on efficiently, you need processes. So how have, uh, you know, you kind of shaped your processes? Is it just trial and error and volume like we've been talking about? Because obviously, I, I imagine the processes that, you know, business casual copywriting is different than case study, buddy, right? Yeah, they have to be because business casual is me and sometimes right. a subcontractor. Case study buddy, I mean, case study buddy started as a productized service and the backbone of every productized service you'll ever buy from is the process that makes it happen. Mm -hmm. You cannot build a company like case study buddy and not have a consistent process you follow every time. Um, so when it came to case study buddy, it was okay. I, for me personally, and other people will, will disagree with this. And I think, you know, as the business matures and, and things get busier, you can't always take this approach. But for me, I always want to try my hand at something so that I understand it first okay. before I try to build a process around it. So in the early days of Case Study Buddy, it was me doing everything end to end. Like the first few projects, it was me running the interview, me writing things up, me you know, working off of the, the different components of it. And I needed to do that because I needed to understand that everything is easy to say, oh, just write a case study, oh, just mm -hmm. run an interview. But when you get into the guts of it, there's like a million things that can happen or scenarios that can go wrong. Like 
Case Study Buddy has been around for five, four or five years now. And we're still surprised by things that come up. And, and this is like with the narrowest of focuses on just telling customer success stories in a, in a multitude of different ways. But like mm-hmm. things that I never expected would happen, for example, is like, we'll do an interview with someone who's agreed to be as part of a customer success story. Mm-hmm. We'll get on the call uh, and they're actually not happy at all. They're, they're like about oh, to leave, right? Who would ever think that would happen, right? Right. But all it takes is one or two times for something like that to crop up. And then we engineer that back into the process. So now we have checks and balances to make sure, like, did they just blindly agree to this thing? Like, so much is obvious in hindsight. But back to the bigger question is, I would I would do things myself to understand it. Even mm-hmm. with case study buddy rolling out audiograms as a format, right? Like, we're taking the interviews we conduct, we're turning them into these cool little audio snippets so people can push play and hear the customer say that great quote, which nobody else is doing right now. Um, I, I do the audiograms end to end. Like I go into the transcript, I correct it. I chop the audio. I, you know, do all the steps it takes to do that. So that now when I give that job to someone on my team, I know the steps I went through, I can share those with them. And then when you have great people, they'll take your rough process Mm-hmm. And they'll refine it. They'll find shortcuts or ways to do it faster, or ways to be even more efficient. So with case study buddy, yeah, we we had to engineer and we continue ongoing. That's that's the business to engineer every step of the process, hopefully not over-engineer to account for mm-hmm. like what goes on. So it's predictable and repeatable. And on a macro level for case study buddy, that's that's what makes us efficient. That's what makes us profitable. That's what makes our output, regardless of who's writing the study or who's running the interview predictable with your own work. Same thing. It might just be you, mm-hmm. but if you have steps you go through each time and you know why you go through those steps and you know what you get out of doing those steps and you know what your client gets out of doing those steps, then you're not staring at a blank screen. Every time someone asks you to do a project going, what next? You can just <laughs> right. follow the program. So that's, that's kind of the importance of it. And I think especially as an individual, it's critical, but the minute you want to build a team, it's it's the backbone of everything you do. Your operations are going to make or break your business. Interesting. So I think that brings up like a, uh, a, a, a change or a switch between like, you know, business casual copywriting case study, buddy, because you have a team at case study, buddy, right? Um, like you said, you know, a business casual copywriting, you might outsource some of it, but you know, most of that's you. So like, how has you know, your marketing been different for case study buddy than it has been for business casual. Like, is, is it been built off of, you know, kind of a similar, we've got a good volume of work. We've got a good network, word of mouth. We put out a lot of great content or have you guys been doing things differently than you've done with just business casual? I think they both started the same way. Uh, the, the huge advantage and the huge drawback for business casual. I mean, it works for me today because I'm not trying to turn it into an agency, but mm-hmm. like Joel Kletke, me, I'm synonymous with business casual. I am the company. You are course. right. Um, people hire business casual cause they want me and the work that I do and, and my own personal portfolio. And for, for a, a small consultancy like that, that's fine. With Case Study Buddy, that's the way we started is all all of our initial clients were people that knew me and Mm -hmm. trusted my level of work. And so it was a whole bunch of, yeah, kind of early days, networking, 
getting those first projects, snowballing it into, you know, some, some of a portfolio and then having good referrals from there. And we still, our primary way of growing today is still referrals. It's still when I do a speaking gig or come on a podcast or whatever, that's a lot of how we grow, but we know as a company, that's, that's not enough. And so where we have differentiated as case study buddy is we run ads. Like we're, we're okay. for the first time we, we run ads. So we do run, um, you know, we've tried Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, Google ads, like we're targeting, um, we're running ads as a company because we need at this stage, we need more people to know we exist than can mm-hmm. fit inside my personal bubble. Right. I can be as prolific a creator as I want, but when you have a team, it's not really, it's not going to be enough. And it's not, it's not an efficient use of, of your people or your time. Mm-hmm. So we're running ads. I think as we step into the future too, like the, the important distinction I want to make too, is like case study buddy right up until about the middle of 2018 was like a profitable side project. It just like grew under its own steam. Jen mm-hmm. and I, I have a partner case study buddy. You know, we, we spent maybe 25% of our time on the business and it just like railroaded it. It just continued around 2018. It got to the point where like, this thing is too big to like fly on autopilot at this point. Like if, if we want to really do justice to the company and the idea, we have to start putting more time in. Okay. So, you know, part of the way our marketing differs now is like, yeah, it's still, I get on podcasts, I do speaking gigs, I publish a lot, but we have other people who write for us. Okay. Um, we're, we're moving towards like someone else runs our uh, social channel for us now. We're about to implement kind of an ongoing newsletter, but we're late, we're late to the game on a lot of this stuff. You know, marketing has been a, a weak spot, I think, for us because we haven't really needed it. Right, um, but make bigger goals and try to, to be bigger. Yeah. Things like ads, things like democratizing our content creation process, putting other people in charge, giving them agency to just run with different ideas. That's, that's where we're increasingly trying to get. And then the other thing that we're, we're going to be doing is more resource-based marketing. So we know there are a lot of pain points surrounding getting customer success stories. Um, so putting out more, you know, downloadable resources or even webinars and guides, those are things we're looking toward the future. I've always been of the mindset of give, give more than you hoard. There's certain mm-hmm. things that, like, yeah, they're proprietary to us and we don't want everyone knowing, but for mm-hmm. the most part, you can go listen to podcasts I've done, watch presentations I've given. A lot of people are shocked at how much we share. And I've always been of the mindset that that's a good thing to do. Because realistically, like 10% of people are going to watch what I do. And they're going to say, we're going to do that ourselves. 90% are going to go, holy crap, that's way harder than I expected. We'll just hire case study buddy to do it. And that, that's actually something that I see a lot with, uh, you know, some like entrepreneurs that I work with is that they have this fear that if I give a whole lot, it's not because they're being selfish. That's, you know, you and I both know that's not why it is, but it's like, they have this like fear, like if I you know, give all of, you know, my expertise, then they're kind of focusing on that 10%. That's like, oh, I can just implement that myself. But really the upside's in the 90%, right? Like, cause you have to balance, like, obviously you can't give away like your proprietary processes for case study buddy of how you, you know, create one. But what, what do you, um, cause I'm, I'm sure you don't come into it a whole lot, but like, was there any resistance from you or have you just always been of the mindset, like, you know, give more than you um, just, you know, continue to give and don't worry about that 10% because the upside's with the 90%. I'm like, yeah, I'm coming the opposite. Like I, I used to give everything away. Um, mm-hmm. 
And now it's more like, okay, like we see, we have in some cases created our own competition. Um, okay. And so like, it is a valid fear, right? Like you can, I think, go too far with it. And that's why there are things now that we just don't share, but I still remain to this day. I mean, there's a great book um, called give and take, and it okay. looks at, okay, what's the difference between like, it, it analyzes the question of like, are takers or givers more successful in terms of like business people who take more than they give or give. And so it looks at that. And it also looks at the difference between like what kind of giving um, kind of facilitates this success, right? Mm-hmm. Like how do you avoid being a doormat? Cause at some point you go from being this generous soul to being somebody people just walk all over. It's a fantastic book. Um, and so that is, you know, it, it is a valid concern. There are some things you should keep to yourself. There are some things that are your core differentiators that took you years to sort out or learn where it's like, you don't have to give that piece of things away. But I would say the majority of it for me is I have rarely regretted sharing or giving or um, passing ideas on. I think Mm -hmm. it's part of, I talked about earlier, solving problems in public. It's part of how people start to see you as a bona fide. I mean, the phrase is kind of cliche at this point. It's not that I ever set out to be this, but like a thought leader. Like if you want to be a thought leader, you should have something new or interesting or valuable to share. Mm -hmm. So I still tilt towards give heavy and hard, but I've learned to dial back some things and, and keep some things a little bit closer and sort of find the line between, okay, what is it that only we know or only we do? Mm-hmm. And what's something that, you know, we can help someone get 80% of the way there. And then that 20% is going to be what sets us apart. And there's different ways to build a moat. I mean, for case study buddy, part of how we're d- differentiating over time is our ability to do, take one interview and turn it into a full campaign's worth of assets, mm-hmm. audio, video, you know, social media, written assets that are long and short blog content. I mean, that's how we now kind of stay ahead of people like freelancers and their limited capacity and they're kind of in one lane, but uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I still lean towards give and, and keep, keep a little bit to yourself, but I've, like I said, I've rarely regretted kind of being helpful. Yeah. And then that's uh, I'll have to, I'll have to check out that book. Cause I, 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 I'm of the same mindset. I think that uh, of you given, obviously you've been doing a lot longer and you get it, but I mean, I, I think good does come out of doing good, but you're right. There is a line. Um, interesting. So I thought you said something interesting that I just wanted to, um, I, I guess, kind of talk through a little bit more. So case study, obviously, you know, you have growth plans for case study, buddy, you have growth plans for it. Um, you're trying to scale up, you're focusing more on the marketing for it. So as the main driver, do you see kind of the ad strategy that you guys are going on right now? Uh, Do you see that as kind of the main driver of growth going forward? Or do you envision yourself having to add a sales component to it? Uh, Maybe not somebody cold calling, definitely not you cold calling. But uh, do you think that, um, you know, you can sustain that type of growth ambition with just marketing? Or that you can, you know, you're gonna have to add a sales component to it? Because that's something that I run up against that I see is that people think that there has to be a sales motion in order to, you know, scale a business. Um, But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it because you're actively doing it. Yeah. um, We are adding a sales component um, because our competitors are, I mean, we, we have to stay ahead. Uh, I Mm -hmm. I do believe in the power of marketing. And I also believe in the power of sales because I've seen both. Right. Um, We, we want to do sales a little bit differently. Um, My, 
earnest prayer is that we'll never be a company that just shows up in your LinkedIn inbox asking you to get on a call. Um, Cause I, I loathe that type of sales. So we, we want to take kind of a giving approach to sales. That's as much okay. as I can really share on this. Yeah, no, that's all right. Right now. Um, but you know, like, yeah, we, we do plan to add a sales piece to this. Um, we're in the process of it now. I think, you know, the marketing, the inbound side of things is great. Um, you know, we, we are publishing more now. We are putting together more resources. And I think you can continue to grow that way. And honestly, I think you can continue to grow for some companies just off of like for us, word of mouth alone. Like I can't tell you how many times the company we interviewed for a client goes, that was really great. Can you do some for us? So we have an organic, you know, growth channel as well. But the, the advantage to sales is just we need people to know we exist beyond mm. our immediate bubbles. And, and it's very hard to, as a small company with limited resources and no sales component, it's difficult to burst your own bubble, um, mm-hmm. to, to reach this kind of contingent of people on the periphery who don't know who you are. So for us and our goals, yeah, we're adding a sales component because we want to see how it serves us and, and what kind of return we, we get on that. We want to do it differently. We want to do it better. Um, you know, it won't be me cold calling, but it might be me, you know, sending some emails or it might be, you know, our, our team kind of working together to do some account based stuff. You know, th- mm-hmm. there's different ways we think about going about it. But I think at some point, you know, for me, the thing that changed my perspective on this is like, if we think about, okay, who, who is the, on paper, the most inbound company on the planet, the company that coined it probably, right? HubSpot? Right, HubSpot, right. HubSpot has a gigantic sales team. Huge. So yep. it's huge, right? There's something to be said for the company that champions the idea of inbound having a huge outbound team. There's some validity to that. So I don't think you necessarily need it like, you know, for every company all the time, immediately, there's companies that famously have grown, you know, without huge sales departments, though I question how much faster they would have grown with one. With one, but, right. Yeah. For, for us, it's something we're definitely, you know, as we grow, we're, we're going to be doing more of. Awesome. Yeah, that was, a, I think that was a really um, good nuanced answer, because you do have to appreciate the fact that you know, you, you do need it at some point, you know, if you want to be able to kind of, uh, you know, pair it with effective marketing. Cause I think, I mean, wonder if you come across this at all, cause you probably work on more of the marketing end, especially with uh, business casual copywriting. You feel like there's sometimes a tension between you know, like marketing and sales. I'm not talking about like alignment, but just in terms of like a growth driver for your business, do you feel like there's sometimes a tension that has to be in either or when it's really kind of a, a harmony between the two? I mean, you see this at companies of all sizes, right? right? Like a big part of my job when I come into companies that everyone thinks should know better is I interview the sales team, I interview the marketing team and it's like, okay, not even just with alignment. It's like, you guys, if you guys just pulled in the same direction, mm-hmm. you'd be further ahead, right? Um, because there's intelligence that's earned on both sides. Marketing, you know, who you're pulling in, it gives you like, there, there's the analogy of like the story of like in the war, they would look at planes and like see where all the bullet holes were and like patch up all the bullet holes. Right. Um, but that didn't fix anything. And they realized like, Oh, cause all the planes that don't come back got shot somewhere else. So they're patching all of the spots on planes that survived where it's like, 
yeah, we need to reinforce the wings. We need to reinforce this part of the hull. But those are the planes that made it, right? Mm -hmm. You're missing this huge contingent of like planes that went down and you don't know where they got shot. Marketing does a really good job of like showing you where to patch the holes on the planes that come back. It gives you a good idea of like who you're bringing in now and helps you reach a really well-defined audience. Sales gives you this other side of the coin though, where it's like, how's the market changing today? Who aren't we reaching? Who could we be reaching? It gives you this different type of insight. So when the two pull really well, sales becomes an intelligence engine for marketing. Marketing becomes an intelligence engine for sales. And now they're kind of like this synonymous, you know, relationship. This, they're really in sync. So it doesn't have to be either or. And I think there's a danger in over-prioritizing mm -hmm. just one or the other. Again, there's companies like, there's exceptions to the rule always. Like there, there's people like Dave Gerhardt has grown, for example, his entire brand just on his great marketing. And mm -hmm. that's fantastic. He, he probably never needs to do any sales other than like, uh, you know, maybe he runs an affiliate program for his personal like network or whatever. But for the most part, his content's so good, people are just going to pass him on. And he's an individual, so he doesn't have like crazy overhead or anything. He doesn't really have right. to build that wing out. Um, but I think at some point, it's much more advantageous to have both sides feeding each other intelligence, working together so that you can stay ahead. I mean, even with case study, buddy, right? Like where we started and when we started, we were pretty much the only team dedicated to just those assets okay. there were other teams that did it as one of the things they did and there's casey hibbard who's great and she maybe had her own team i'm not totally sure but like the the landscape was pretty you know like blue ocean and it's still for us really blue ocean but as more competitors come in and start doing different things if we're not like watching the market or kind of doing sales and hearing back like what else is attracting people we're losing sight of where things are going to so I think, yeah, there can be misalignment. Yeah, there can be this idea of one or the other. I think I'm learning to warm up to the idea that like there's there's enormous value for a lot of companies in doing both. It doesn't have to be everybody, but I think for companies like ours, like we'll miss something if we don't at least have some initiative, even just as like an intelligence, <laughs> a learning operation. Yeah. And then I am, by the way, I am loving these analogies. Like, I feel like you were like, like they're, I think very effective. Like I love the, the sports ones earlier and the, the plane one earlier. It's a really good way to communicate that. Um, I mean, okay. I'll okay, cut you off ahead. for one second. Cause no, there's a coffee lesson there. One of the best ways, right. Cause I work with, this is just a total aside, but it might be interesting for someone listening. No. Yeah, absolutely. One of the best ways to sell a new idea is anchor it in a known. So like, let's say you have a totally new and novel solution. You're like, yeah, like it's, it's great, but people don't get it. Mm -hmm. Metaphors and analogies, that's how you get ideas to stick. So in the book Made to Stick, which everyone I think should read, that should be mandatory reading for anyone who does marketing or sales or just wants to make their own writing better. Um, when you can take a new concept or a new mm -hmm. idea and anchor it in a known example, that's how, I mean, it sounds so obvious, but that's how it really sticks with people and helps them conceptualize something that maybe was out of out of reach before so in my copywriting work i use a lot of analogies it's like a or and so on and so forth so it's a good habit to get into is like building your repertoire of analogies <laughs> getting yeah. good at you because they're like perfect and i feel like the the struggle i always have with analogies is like finding the right one at the right place you know because then because like you totally like delivered it perfectly like both of those and so um that's interesting so i do actually okay I think because it will be valuable. So when you're talking about, you know, made the stick and like anchoring it in something that's already known, 
are you talking about like um, using a direct analogy like you did with that plain one? Or are you talking about, you know, anchoring them in like the present state? Hey, here's how it is and here's how it could be. Yeah, as an example, like when I was working on Traffic Think Tank, um, they are a Slack group, uh, more than a Slack group. That's disingenuous. That's actually what we didn't want people to think. Uh, they're, they're a community um, mm -hmm. for SEOs. And there are loads of paid communities for SEOs. But what makes Traffic Think Tank different is it actually functions not like a Slack group, but a community. There People mm -hmm. share and pass on opportunities and ideas and actually discuss things and uh, when, when someone faces a problem, if they post it to the group and they wait, you know, a couple hours, they'll come back to, you know, a chain of people like ready and willing to help. Well, when Traffic Think Tank launched, paid groups for SEOs were, there were some, but they weren't as prolific. As the whole like subscription economy thing like took off, now every Joe and Molly is, is launching these things all over the place. So they needed to shift their positioning. So if you go look at their current sales page, you're going to see, and I wrote it, it's riddled with analogies to help people conceptualize not just the concept, but the value. So for example, I forget what the exact thing, you know, example is, but like, it's like having a lifeline on who wants to be a millionaire, right? When you're facing a tough problem and you need to pull the crowd, that's what being part of traffic thing thing is like, or it's like being sat at a boardroom full of veteran SEOs all excited to help you out, right? That's a very different mental picture than it's like a chat, giant chat room full of chaos and noise, which, mm -hmm. which traffic think tank isn't. Um, you know, for their learning uh, resources, it's like a personal library of SEO resources written by the best in the business and things like that, right? Taking these lofty concepts. So it's, it's yeah, it's, a, it's okay in an unsexy term. It's a bunch of really valuable courses on different topics. Mm -hmm. But if I can take this kind of broad thing and use an analogy or a metaphor to shape the way that someone views it, that will color the context they look at it through. Like if I was to write, we have over 100 courses for you to pour over, right? That feels intimidating. That's like, holy right. crap, 100 courses. Like number one, okay, for some people that's really attractive. Number two, like I'm never gonna watch 100 courses. Mm -hmm. When I talk about it being like a personal library or like having a cheat sheet at the back of the book for any SEO problem you'll come across, totally different, same offer, totally different way of thinking about it. I wanna have a cheat sheet, a quick shortcut to having a great answer from someone I trust any problem my face. I don't want a hundred disparate courses that, you know, I, I have to hunt through, right? Same exact offering, use a metaphor or an analogy to change the way that it's perceived. And now they get the value. So that's one thing. I think what you're talking about too, where it's like, this is how it is. And this is how it could be. That's future pacing. So part mm -hmm. of what we do in copywriting as well is we try to get people, you'll read this word a lot in copies, imagine like, Imagine, and, and you'll see it on Traffic Think Tank too, right? Imagine being able to tap your favorite SEO on the shoulder and get a personalized response to the problem you're facing, right? That's future pacing. I'm imagining myself being able to go up to say Nick Eubanks and go, oh, I'm having trouble with this. And he'll say, oh yeah, here you go, right? So you, both are, are different devices that, that we'll use to sort of future pacing helps people see themselves in this bigger, better future that they want analogies and metaphors help them conceptualize the value or just see it through a different lens. We want to control to some degree, the way people interpret the value of what we have on offer. Joel, that was a like three minute masterclass in copywriting right there. <laughs> that was, that was, that was gold. That was awesome. Um, I think that's incredibly valuable. Um, okay. I'm looking at the time. I've got one more question for you, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, 
this can be for your two businesses, or this can be for what you see in your client landscape. Um, biggest marketing challenge in 2021 that you think people are still figuring out how to solve. And I know that's a huge blanket statement. It depends really, but if you had to pinpoint one, what are you seeing a lot of, or what are you experiencing a lot of? I mean, I'm biased because of the areas that I run in, right? So I, mm -hmm. I see a lot of problems over and over again. So for me, they're really, really prevalent and prominent. Um, but I really do believe, especially in B2B, um, it's, it's getting harder and harder to be different. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it's getting increasingly different. Like if you look at software, for example, they can, your competitors can copy your features. Uh, they can copy your positioning. They can copy uh, your design. They can copy your copy. I think the one thing that the big differentiator over time is nobody can copy your proof. No one can copy your results. That's mm -hmm. why I'm passionate about customer success stories is they are tangible evidence. You can deliver what you promised and have delivered what you promised. And nobody can take that away from you, right? If, if you've helped a certain client achieve a certain type of result, that's a story only you can tell. And so on a broader sense, and this is something Pep Laya was saying on Twitter. It's not his original idea, um, but he, you know, he reminded me of it this morning um, is we're entering, I think, a landscape where it's getting incredibly hard to be um, better. It's getting incredibly hard to be the better solution. And so companies, I think, have to transition to being different, being seen differently. Um, and that's where positioning and the old school art of branding and customer success stories, I think, kind of form this trifecta of you know, how do we tell a different story? How do we write the headline only we can write? How do we, you know, sell the angle only we can sell? Um, so I think that's a challenge that's only going to get tougher the more mature markets get. Um, and in any, in any space, you know, like I said, I think it's getting tougher and tougher to be better and you have to find a way to be different. And there's lots of ways to do that, but I think that's going to be a core challenge people have to, to work to unpack. All right. Well, hey, that was uh, it was a, a nice, like rich, full answer. And I this is a lot of fun. I've, I've already learned in 40 minutes so much from this. So I can only imagine what everyone is going to learn from this. I really appreciate you being on here, Joel. I think you gave a lot of great insights. Um, if somebody wanted to connect with you, if somebody needed a case study done or just want to talk some copy, uh, how could they reach you, Joel? Sure. Uh, so for case studies, you can check out casestudybuddy.com. Um, we have resources there. A lot of giving happens in, in the <laughs> blog there and um, helping people move forward with these, but you can contact us there and that will get the, the ball moving. Um, you can connect with me on Twitter at Joel Kletke. Um, in terms of, you know, I, I say this every time, but I don't always respond quickly, but I do my best to always respond. Um, you know, it's, it's important for me. Uh, I, I like to try to be helpful where I can within the limitations of the time I've got. You can check out businesscasualcopywriting.com. I don't publish as much there on the blog, but you can find the link to my newsletter there. And I try to only send something when I have something valuable to say or uh, some sort of angle I think will be useful to people. So at least right now, I'm certainly not sending something every single day. I'm not, I'm not trying to blow up your inbox. And I do you know, very little hard selling in there. Uh, it's, it's a lot of just me sharing stuff I'm working on or teardowns of sites and trying to teach people how to see things better themselves. And then the odd time I might plug a little course or something like that, but it's certainly not every single email. Um, so yeah, the, the newsletter, Twitter, LinkedIn, and casestudybuddy.com, those are probably the best places to 
get in touch or, or check out the work that, that I'm doing and, and chat. Awesome. Well, hey, Joel, really appreciate you coming on here. This was a great episode and uh, hopefully maybe we can have you on again sometime in the uh, future. Sounds good. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Thanks. You too, Joel. See ya. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Effective Marketing for Entrepreneurs podcast. We release new episodes weekly, so please feel free to check out the rest of the episodes we've already published and hope to see you again soon.